This is a Federal News Network podcast. Contractors have long complained that they don't get enough information in debriefings, those informational meetings contracting officers often grant after they've made the award. Well, now you've got until July 19th to comment on a proposed change to the defense supplement of the Federal Acquisition Regulation. Prompted by a 2018 provision in the Defense Authorization Law, the briefings would get some enhancements. For more, we turn to RJO attorney Jeff Shio. Mr. Shio, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. So what's going on with this rule? They are responding to a congressional mandate on debriefings. What is the problem that the rule is trying to solve here? The problem it's trying to solve is that there's been a sense within industry that they're not getting a fulsome debrief, and the only way to get more information is to file a protest. And so, in part, I think a response to the RAND study that said, what is the problem with uh, procurements and bid protests? And the answer that came out of it was, we need more information. And so this the law tries to fix that. But the counter-argument to full debriefings is that the contractors would get more ammunition for their protests. I think that's true. You know, it depends upon which client you're talking about, but certainly it's the case that the responsible clients I work with, once they hear a clean story that seems like it's uh, an uphill battle, they'll stop their protest or, or they won't file. All right. So tell us what the proposed rule would do then. How would it change debriefings if it becomes uh, enacted? Yeah. So in fact, it wouldn't actually change much because as soon as the statute came out, the Department of Defense issued a uh, interim guidance that essentially put into effect this requirement. So, so since 2018, DOD contractors have been able to get an enhanced debriefing. And an enhanced debriefing means what relative to a standard debriefing? So there's lots of detail that we could go into, but let's just keep it basic. You know, once you get your debrief, and by the way, you should always accept the first date offered because a lot of timing is tied to that. Once you get your debrief, what enhanced debriefing means is you get two business days to ask your follow-up questions. Then the government has five business days to respond. And then your debriefing is complete when you get those responses. All right. And this would then do what if the new rule would give you more time for all of this? So all the new rule does is is essentially, as I said, give effect to what has already been happening. And, And it tries to do some clarification. But as I mentioned to you when we were setting up the call, it doesn't do a great job of that. It actually introduces some confusion that was dealt with in a recent federal circuit case. I can go into that if you'd like me to. Well, yeah. For the layman, tell us what happened. Yeah, sure. At the end of the day, the debriefing rules, what they trigger is the timeliness of your bid protest, which you'll usually file at the Government Accountability Office, and also the provisions of the SECA stay. The SECA stay is that, you know, the order that stops performance until the protest is resolved. And so the very simple rule is that once the debriefing is completed, then you have five days, not business days, five days to file your GAO bid protest and to get a SECA stay. And so what's been happening again since the law was established back in December of 2017 is you get the extra debriefing questions, you get your answer, and that's when your five-day clock starts ticking. But this little wrinkle that comes up is what if you don't ask any questions? Did your debriefing clock start when you decided not to ask questions? or two days later when it became evident that you didn't ask your questions. So again, the federal circuit dealt with this issue and they said, well, if you didn't ask questions, you don't get those extra two days. Crazy. Yeah. We're speaking with Jeff Shiau. He is co-chair of the government contracts practice group at the law firm Rogers Joseph O'Donnell. 
I guess maybe the real question then is a contractor who wants to know what went wrong if they did not get the award, what is the best practice for using a debriefing or seeking a debriefing, and what should you ask to make sure you get your questions answered? Yeah, I do a lot of bid protests, and the way that I generally advise clients is ask your questions when you ask for the debriefing because these new rules will give you maybe two shots at asking questions. So when you ask the agency for a debrief, throw in a couple of questions that are obvious to you, and hopefully they'll address those in your debrief. And then you get two more days, now that you have a fuller understanding, you get two more days to ask those more robust questions. Yeah, so you should then know what it is you want to ask ahead of time. You should do some preparation before requesting the debriefing, it sounds like. Absolutely. And, and whenever somebody calls me, I pull out FAR 15506. I say, this is what they have to tell you. And let's look at what else you think went wrong. Let's ask all the questions so you can get all the answers you're entitled to. And I imagine that contracting officers vary in the degree to which they are forthcoming in what it is they give out, because some of them just are by the book, by the rule, and they want to give as little as they possibly can because they consider it their government prerogative to do their discretion in awarding contracts. Others you know, are a little bit looser about it. So does it take a little human relations work to get the most out of a particular CO? Yeah. And you can use all the human relations work you want. If somebody wants to hide the ball, they're going to hide the ball. We actually filed a bid protest yesterday. The notice of award that our client got did not say who won any awards or how much they were awarded at. There's nothing there to go on. And, and that, unfortunately, is what this rule and similar ones are supposed to avoid. But it's, it still happens. So sometimes you have to just grit your teeth and take it easy because you could have that same contracting officer the next time around. And so you want to kind of maintain some level of relationship with your customer. Yeah. But if you give in too many times, then you'll end up getting that same treatment. You'll never hear a true story about why you weren't selected. And then you'll just sort of be ushered off to the side. That's why people decide sometimes regretfully to file bid protests. And getting back to this proposed new DFARS rule, then what should comments say? What, what do you advise people to comment on if they want to? Or what are you uh, telling the government? My comments are going to be sort of around the need to clarify some of the things that are done here. It's intending to fix a problem, but this problem has a long history. The statute modifies Title 10 in the debriefing rules that are in there. By the way, Title 10 is not just DOD. Title 10 is DOD, NASA, and the Coast Guard. So if you have a NASA procurement, are you entitled to these same rules? Well, now you're going to have a DFARS rule that implements them, but not a NASA rule even though the statute says you're entitled to it. So there's lots of ins and outs and, and also that little wrinkle about, you know, does your clock start on the day that you decide not to ask debrief questions, the, the issue that came up in the federal circuit case. So clarifying a lot of different things, uh, I'll try to do that in my comments on the rule. Yeah. And just listening to you and having covered this whole topic for so many years, then it now strikes me that your debriefing and possible protest strategy should be integral to the planning of your whole bidding process, shouldn't it? Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I like to talk about pre-award bid protest thinking and having that as part of your capture planning. But absolutely, you've got to be thinking about bid protests if you're going over after anything that matters to you in the federal space. Got it. Jeff Shiau is co-chair of the government contracts practice at the law firm Rogers Joseph O'Donnell. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to that proposed rule at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, 
Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a B.S. from the University of South Carolina and an M.P.A. from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is starting to lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. <laughs> Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally 
was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. 
And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Love Target? Well, you're about to love it even more. Target's new Red Card Reloadable saves you 5% every Target trip, in-store and online, and doesn't require a bank account or credit check to get approved. Target.com slash Red Card to get all the details. Restrictions apply.